Brothers and sisters, it's a cold, wet day, which I really enjoy. I, I actually really enjoy this weather. It's, uh, yeah, I really dislike the heat, so this has been a, a nice change. Um, it's really there's one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. Basically, it, to paraphrase it in the way I put it is uh, that if we have a longing within our hearts that nothing in this world can satisfy, then obviously we're created for another world. If we have a longing within our hearts that nothing in this world can satisfy, then obviously we're created for another world. In our last year, we shared a vision for the church of living for eternity. And why that was so significant was because eternity, according to Ecclesiastes 3.11, has been placed within our hearts. And it's true, we desire for something more. We desire and look for something more whether we try to find more in our jobs and always find that when we achieve what we want to in our jobs, we realize that, well, there's something more. Whether it be meeting the goal of having our own house, of being secure financially, and we reach that goal, we always find that there's a slight dissatisfaction with that and we look for something more. We might be reaching a certain level in our education, a certain level in our profession, a certain level in our relationships, And when we reach that goal, we think, finally, and yet we always look for something more. Why? Because eternity has been placed in our heart, because we are created for more than just the here and now. Now, whilst we begin a new year, the vision itself still stays along the lines of living for eternity, but that living for eternity consists of numerous themes along the lines of knowing God, loving God, serving God, that whilst we live for eternity, we know God as our Lord and Savior, we seek to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and and we endeavor to serve him with all that we are. Then you have this whole idea of building community, and, and that is part of it, as the body of Christ, we are called to build the community of Christ, not only within the body we have here at Grace Christian Church, but by reaching out to those who don't know him. And so, that whole idea of living for eternity still consists, even this year, that we prioritize the eternal over the temporal, uh, the world that is to come over the world that is here and now. Why? Because the here and now will pass away, we're told in the Scriptures, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Now, for those who weren't here last week, last week I had the privilege of sharing with you what I deemed the four loves as expressed in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. These four loves that represent what the church will be like. We read in the scriptures that it says, in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, etc., etc. And I wanted to, and I proposed an argument last week that he's actually not talking about society or the culture of 21st century Australia. He is talking about the church, that in the last days, the church will be lovers of money, lovers of themselves, not lovers of the good, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And all those things that are grayed out are the things that are connected to or identify with one of those four loves. And that was quite a condemning condemning description of our Christianity today, I think. That our Christianity is very, very shallow in comparison to what Jesus desires to offer us 
in our relationship with him. And what he's given for us to combat these four loves. And I looked at three things. And these three things I do not think up. These three things are actually the correction that Jesus gives the church at Ephesus in, in Revelation chapter 2. Was to remember, to repent, and to reprioritize. Or in uh, Revelation chapter 2 it says to redo. So to remember who we are, where we are in the timeline and plan of God. Repent of such self-focused, self-gratifying activity by having our hearts so impressed upon, our hearts so immersed in the revelation of Jesus Christ and his goodness that it would lead us to repentance. Romans chapter 2, I think I put it up here, actually says that. It actually refers, they do not know contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. The goodness of God draws us to repentance and calling us then to reprioritize our lives willingly and practically. That, that nurture and, and to lean us toward lives of righteousness and godliness. And that's what Romans chapter 6 verse 16 is there for. So we are encouraged to remember, to repent, and to reprioritize in order to combat the four loves that are of self-absorption and self-centeredness within our Christianity. And for our benefit and for our growth to heed the commands of God that according to 1 John chapter 5 verse 3 are not burdensome. In the old King James it says the commands of God are not grievous. Why? Because the commands of God are not designed to suppress, but to release. Are not designed to hold us back, but to liberate. And to be liberated to this the central theme of, of what we're going to look at today. See, last week was about living in the last days, and that was more of an introduction for today's message, which is about living in divine purpose. To live in divine purpose. That as we seek to live for eternity, as we live in these last days, that we live for a purpose that is beyond us, for a purpose that is bigger than us, to live for divine purpose, or to live in divine purpose. So I'm going to open in a word of prayer, and prayerfully, if you haven't listened to the sermon last week, I would encourage you to listen to it. It's on our website, gracechristianchurch.com.au, gracechristian.com.au, sorry, um, and have a look at that in last week's sermon there to help provide a little bit of context. Um, so join me in prayer as we open the word together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, we thank you so much for your spirit that gives us understanding and unction that teaches us the truths and the realities found within your scriptures and impresses upon us, Lord, to live for something more than ourselves, to live for you and to live in your purposes for our lives. I pray you will help me to speak slowly and clearly this morning. I pray that each heart here, no matter where we're at in our walks with you, you will stir us, you will draw us, and you will challenge us that we might live prioritizing you above all else. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at three verses 
And in these three verses, we're going to look at three things that prayerfully would encourage us and equip us with the abilities to live our lives of divine purpose. I'm going to sort of alternate between divine purpose and God's purpose, okay? Because that's what I'm actually looking at here. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, we read this. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I'm going to read that verse again. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Verse 16. So from now on we regard no one, from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. In this passage, there are three things that will prayerfully inform us, equip us, and stir us to live our lives with the right motivation, what I call the pull, what I call the pull. Now, when I say the right motivation, the pull, uh, I believe it was either Charles Wesley or John Wesley, who talked about the leadership and ministry of Jesus Christ as he led his disciples. And and he said, leadership, Christian leadership, godly leadership is always drawing, never pushing. Always drawing, or I've used the word here, pull, pulling as opposed to pushing. And so I think that's a really, a really good point there regarding leadership. And, and the example our Lord Jesus gives is exactly that. When you read in John chapter 1, when he meets up with, I think, with Andrew and, and Andrew in and, and, and John chapter 1, and, and he says, and, and even Nathaniel, and they follow him. They were, they were followers and disciples of John, and they follow Jesus after John gives this great explanation as to who he is. Behold the Lamb of God, etc., 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 and so when they follow him, and Jesus asks both of them and says, where are you going? And they said, well, we want to follow. We want to find out who you are. Jesus says these three words, come and see. Come and see. He doesn't say, this is who I am. What's going? He says, come and see. Come and find out. What's that? That's drawing them. That's drawing them. It's pulling them closer, not by force or anything. He just says, you come and see. And several times it's throughout, throughout the gospel. So that phrase is used. Come and see. When Andrew goes and tells his brother, hey, we, Nathaniel goes and says, hey, we found, sorry, not Nathaniel, Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And this says, can any good thing come from Nazareth? And he says, come and see. Come and see. So there's this, this whole idea of the right motivation, the pull, followed by the right reason or the purpose which we look at in verse 15, finally with the right understanding, looking at the perspective of how we see things. Now I know this is going to be as basic and you think, oh, this is so simple, whatever it is. Look, I have no issue with that whatsoever. This is not anything new. It's like what John writes in this first epistle. He goes, I write no new commandment unto you. He goes, I don't. This is not new. It's very hard to live. It's very hard to live out and apply in each of our lives, regardless of our context. And so we look at this first one, the right motivation, 
the pull. And it's these four, five, five words that starts off, for Christ's love compels us. For Christ's love compels us. In several translations, that word compels. In the King James, it's referred to as being constrained, meaning to be bound, to be caught up by the love of Jesus. In the ESV, the word compel is translated as controls, which is like, which is like constrain, but it implies that one cannot help but respond in the appropriate way. In other translations, the word compels is translated as moved in the Good News translation. It is translated as urged in the Revised Standard Version and to put into action in the Lexham English Bible. All of which implies that our service, that our allegiance, that our commitment to the Lord Jesus is not motivated by Fear, as some people claim. It is not motivated by debt in the sense that you have to pay him back for what he's done for you. And it's not earned by purchasing or trying to purchase God's acceptance and God's forgiveness. See, each of these words here moves away from those things. Because I've, I've spoken with people in the past who have said to me, you only fear God, you only serve God, you only follow God, because if you don't, you're going to go to hell. I says, no, that's not the reason why I serve. Then why? Why would you give up all this stuff? Why? Why would you do this? And I shared this a number of months ago, David Bennett. David Bennett, and I've, if you want to listen to a great great testimony of this young man. He's from Sydney. He's a homosexual who's come to know Jesus Christ when a woman shared the gospel with him in a pub of all places, and he experienced the love of Jesus Christ, and he has chosen now to live a life of celibacy as a homosexual. Why? Because the love of Jesus Christ is so much more than what he could ever find from a person. And it's an amazing, I'll put it on the devotional wall, it's a podcast, it's for about an hour and 20 minutes, but it's a great testament, and he writes a book called The War of Two Loves, and he talks about how he has the, the love of the flesh and the love of Christ, and he would much rather be satisfied in the love of Christ above everything else, because he's captivated, he is, he is constrained, he's controlled, he's moved, he's urged, he's put to action by the love he's experienced in Jesus Christ, a love that gave his life so that he might have life. A love that died for him, so he didn't have to experience death. A love that you and I know in the person of Jesus Christ. So it's not out of fear. It's just this pearl of great price, a love so great, you would much rather give everything else up to attain that one great fear. That's why that one great love, that one great pearl. Because our fear is won over by love. Our debt is paid by the sacrifice Jesus gave, expressing that love. Therefore, our efforts to earn something is null and void because we find that our ability to earn such acceptance, such forgiveness, such salvation is beyond our ability to do. That's the reason why we needed to come humbly before the Lord Jesus and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This phrase, the love of sorry, Christ's love compels us, is a description that can be interpreted in two ways. One, that it's my love for him that moves, urges, or controls me. And two, 
the focus of his love that ignites my love for him. Okay? Now I'm going to explain that again, okay? There's one way you look at it. It says, oh, for Christ's love compels me. It could be like, well, my love for Christ compels me, urges me, makes me move. Or two, it is Christ's love that ignites my love to want to flow, to want to serve him, to want to love him. And I think that is the second description that is more accurate because the picture given is that of his willing sacrifice on the cross that expressed that love. The rest of the verse indicates this. So it says, for, the lo- for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. Now there's a huge significance of this statement because Romans chapter 6 verse 7 speaks of how in death one is freed from sin. In death one is freed from sin. Therefore, through trust in Christ's death for us and trust in his death and resurrection, we too experience that same freedom because we are crucified with Christ. We read this in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So, because of us being in Christ, because of us trusting in Him for forgiveness of our sin, because of that taking place, we have been crucified with Christ and therefore experienced the freedom of being dead in Christ and raised to life with Him. Galatians chapter 2, verse 28. For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That is what we get to experience. The fact that we have been dead in Christ also means that we live in Christ. Now, the reason why I want to go a roundabout way is because one of my lecturers, Trevor McElwain, He was a missionary in Papua New Guinea. He said, In Scripture, the love of God is always mentioned in relation to the cross. Which when you look at some of the most well-known Scriptures, it is made clearly evident. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world, the love of God, is in direct connection with the cross that he gave his one and only son. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God commends his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Once again, we have that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. The love of God was committed to us in Christ dying for us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 says this. This is... How we know what love is, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And lastly, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
You see, the reason I emphasize this truth is that the love of Christ, sorry, the love of Christ for who he is and the love of Christ for what he has done, is doing, and will do is the very foundation of everything we are and everything we do. You know this in your own life when you see someone that you love and what you're willing to do for them. There is nothing you do to do it for selfish reasons, to manipulate a situation in your, in your favor or anything like that. You want to express how much you love someone and receive that expression from that same person. I, I, I always talk about my wife because my wife is an amazing woman. And I look at my wife and the stuff that she does, the stuff that she's willing to do, the stuff that she, the lengths that she goes to. One of the greatest things when I was first married, actually when we were first here in Australia, I, w- I would work on fruit farms during my time at Bible college. And my wife, because of her love for me, she would make my lunch. Now this is not like two or three sandwiches, a piece of fruit, and a drink. This was a banquet. She would, she would get up, Early hours of the morning, she would get this container that was about this wide, this deep, and she would fill it to the brim of food. She would go all out. She'd get rolls and ham and cheese and tomato and put the mayonnaise in there. She'd go all out. She would get all different drinks, all different sweets. She would bake and give me cakes and all that sort of stuff. And I would get there to work. I'd open my suitcase. I'd take out my lunch, and everybody around me would just go, are you feeding everybody? No, just me. But I end up feeding everyone because I couldn't finish it. Because you know how it's upsetting when I go back and I still have food left over? Why didn't you eat it? Because you gave me enough to feed a small village. <laughs> but she would do such things and she would continue to do such things. She does that now for my son who works early hours of the morning and works 12 hours. She'll do that for my son. Why? She's not, she doesn't have to. She's not indebted to. She wants to express her love in doing so. It's not once considered a burden. Now, Jimmy Lee's not here, so I haven't actually asked him, but I'm going to use this as an example anyway. One of the things Jimmy said, and I remember talking with him about it, when, when he became a dad, little Ariella, who's in her own world, she's an amazing little girl, Ariella, but one of the things he said to me was like, it's amazing, I, I don't consider it a hassle to get up or do something for my daughter. I look forward to getting home to be with her. I, 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 like, I like spending time with her. I like doing this. He was talking about the joys where I hear so many people talking about being a parent and saying, oh, kids, you know? No, I don't. Oh, kids, such a hassle. No, they're not. Not really. I hear a lot of that going on, and so it was really nice to hear somebody different get up and share how much he loves being a dad and going to the greatest of lengths to show how much he loves his children by what he does. Why? Because his love for his daughter compelled him constrained him, bound him, urged him, put him to action in a certain way. And I've seen this in a lot of parents. That's what you do. You're willing to go through the most amazing of lengths to show such things. And the reason why that happens is the same thing regarding our relationship with Jesus. You look at the extent that he went to to show how much he loves you. How he, in all his glory, laid aside everything, clothed himself in human flesh to be born of a virgin in a manger, in a stable, lived a perfect life, was, was brutally accused and falsely accused. Then he was arrested, beaten, hung on a cross, 
died, taken upon him my sin, my guilt, my offenses, my betrayals. He took upon himself that, all for the, all for the reason that he loved me. That's it. That's it. That he loved me, and he rose again to show how much he loved me, to say, if you trust in me, you too can experience and partake of this abundant life that I promise. This means, this means then, with this verse, we love him because he first loved us. That's it. He first loved us. That's the reason why we're here. That's the reason why we want to serve. That's the reason why we want to praise. It's because he demonstrated how much he loved me. And I was saying, okay, Lord, thank you so much for what you have done. This means that you and I, as opposed to going through the motions of the Christian life, must look at ourselves through the lens of God's word and brutally critique ourselves through the compassion of his heart. To see myself the exact same way as the woman did in Luke chapter 7. To know forgiveness, how she came and she washes Jesus' feet. And, and Simon says, <laughs> Simon says, Simon says, well, well, thinks within his heart, if, if he knew the type of woman that washes his feet now, he wouldn't let that happen. And Jesus gives that parable that there were two people who went over to debt. One owed 50, one owed 500, and he forgave them both. Which one will love him the more? Simon replies, the one who has forgiven the more. And he goes, you have spoken rightly. And I think, I think, that a lot of the times for us in our Christian life, we do not realize how much we have been forgiven and how much Jesus was willing to give so that I could be forgiven. See, this is why the love of Christ compels. We, we know intellectually but we aren't really stirred to respond accordingly because maybe or perhaps we don't think we're as bad as we are. To know forgiveness, to know acceptance, to know compassion, to know love, to know this in direct comparison to Jesus and to not anyone else, it, that's what matters, how Jesus views me. How I and how I am viewed by Jesus, because this is how love captivates. This is how love moves. This is how love stirs. This is how love drives. This is how love compels. That we see ourselves in connection to who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That's where it starts. Because once, once we have that or have an inkling towards that, then we move to the purpose. And that's in verse 15, and we read this, that he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, his love led him to die for us. It says, he died for all. But his death was for the purpose of us. And for our purpose, this, that our lives and the focus of our lives move from the self-centeredness, the self-absorption, the selfishness spoken, against, spoken about last week in 2 Timothy chapter 3, to move from this 
and move to the one who gave his life for me to take my offense from me and from being self-focused to being God-focused. Now, I've already quoted the first part of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, that being crucified with Christ and yet still living because Christ who lives in me and it says the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. What happens there is this. There is what's called a change of enablement. You see, in the flesh, for me as Joe, for me as human Joe, for me as, for me as Joe outside of Christ, it is completely impossible for me to live a life that pleases God. No matter how much good I do, no matter how much compassion I show, no matter how much kindness is expressed, there is nothing that I could do within my flesh that could make me acceptable to God. That could only be brought about through faith in Him. And so once I believe in Him, once He saves me, once I'm born again of the Spirit, then He gives me the ability, the enablement to live a life that centers around Him. Why? Because He's changed my goals. He's changed my heart. He's changed my direction. And I, I have seen this. I've seen, for example, Kenny and his great announcement today about the elderly visit. Now, I know for a fact that I would not even consider going to Nordby Retirement Village outside of, outside of being a Christian. Now, I might do it to make myself feel better about myself. I might give money to, to the homeless people, not really to help the homeless people, but to somehow ease my conscience that I'm doing a nice and good thing. I, I could be kind to my next-door neighbors. I, I, look, being brutally honest here, like I, before I was a Christian, I was a really nice guy. Okay? That this, this is me being honest. I, I was a really nice guy before I became a Christian. Now I'm just... No, just kidding. Okay, but I realized, the more I look back on my life as a non-Christian, I did what I did. A lot of those things. 95% of the things I did before I was a Christian was how I looked in the eyes of others. That was it. Oh, Joe, he's such a nice boy. Yeah. Oh, Joe, he's so understanding, so kind. Yeah. Oh, Joe, Joe, he's such a hard worker. He's so diligent. Yeah. But it was all about me. I was the focus of that. And then, after God revealed to me my own sinfulness and my own self-centeredness, even in doing good, I realized now how wretched I am as a person. And the only way I am able to live a life that is pleasing to God is in accordance with His Word, accordance to His goals, and accordance by His Spirit. That's it. See, I'm, I'm not really concerned now about me. I'm concerned, how does this reflect on who Jesus Christ is? When, when I go there, do I represent accurately who God is? Do I glorify? Do I make my boast in the cross of Christ and what He has done? So there's this change of enablement now. But you also look at this again, it, it continues, this, this whole idea of purpose and living for him who loved us and gave himself for us is demonstrated in the example Paul gives about a husband and how he's to love his wife. You look at this, it says, although he's looking specifically at marriage, he looks at Jesus' love and death as a picture we as husbands should aim for. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, look, here it goes, to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless. See, now there's this change in focus. 
So you have this change of enablement on how it's actually done. Now there's this change of focus because it's not about how do I look as a husband, it's what I'm doing to make someone else holy, to make someone else presentable, to make someone else uh, uh, blameless, to make her clean. So there's this, now this, this change in focus. This is the whole idea of, of no longer living for yourself, but for him who loved us and gave himself for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which I've quoted a number of times, it starts off and says, this is who you are. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people belonging to God. And then it says this at the end of it. Why? So you can show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So now there's this, this change there's this change on, in result. No, it's, it's no longer me going there and saying, look at me. Be in awe of my majesty. It's no longer about me now. It's about how do I glorify who God is? How do I change the focus? How do I change the How do I direct it to the Lord Jesus? Three beautiful truths God the Father manifests to us in God the Son that we, through God the Holy Spirit, can experience. And as difficult it is to grasp about living for God and what that means, it has to be said, we all, even now, live for someone or for something else. So easily. It's actually easy. And I've, I've been challenged with this. How do I live for you, Lord? How do I live for you, Lord Jesus? How do I follow you the way I should? How can I lay aside and no longer live for myself? You'll be surprised how easy that is to do because we all do it. We all live for someone, and we all live for something. Whether it be as parents, we live for our kids and want to see our kids do well. Whether it be a husband and wife, I, want to, I live for my wife, and my wife says, I live for my husband. We, we do this all the time. It might be, I live for my job. I live for entertainment. I, I live for this, or I live for that. Uh, Jimmy demonstrated, when I use Jimmy as an example, as a parent, he's living for his kids that he would take out of his busy day to listen to the hurts of his child. That as a, that, that as a friend, when you hear your friend who's going through difficulty or needs help, you live for them and will help out as best you can and whatever within your capability. We do live. We know how to live for other things. Because we do it every single day. But living for Jesus and living for his purposes, living for his will, living for his desires has a similar reasoning. It's a similar reasoning. Because what it means is this. It means that I lay aside what I want for the benefit of someone else and living for someone else. Correct? Which means that I... Okay, okay here we go. Here's one. We were told that I am called to live by faith. Because it is faith that pleases God. Hebrews 11, 6. For without faith it is impossible to please God, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we know this. We know that okay, faith pleases God. Therefore, if I want to live for God, if I want to live for Jesus, then I must step out by faith upon the promises of his word and obedience to his word when he says something as simple as go into all the world and preach the gospel. Or he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's stepping out by faith. That's living for God. And that's entirely within, within our capability. So there's something as simple as that, okay, to live by faith. Oh, okay, hey, there's this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. 
that his love has set me apart and has cleansed me. I think I put the verse up there. No, I didn't. Okay. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 says this, and that is what some of you were. Here we go. But you were washed. You were sanctified, meaning set apart. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So we have been washed, sanctified, and justified to live in a certain way, to live for the Lord Jesus, to live not for yourself, but for him who loved you and gave himself for you. And that, that same Lord, was he presented me, accepted in the beloved, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. That's the security that we have in our identity in Christ. And I, I really like this. I really like this. My son will always be my son. Doesn't matter what happens. Doesn't matter where he goes. If he, if he leaves, goes somewhere else in another country, he's still my son. He'll be, when Jarrell, when Jarrell graduates high school, Nathaniel will be 30. So as a 30-year-old guy, probably still at home, he'll still be my son. Simple as that. It doesn't change. Circumstances don't change that. I am accepted in the beloved, called to stand before him holy and blameless, accepted in him. And in that, that will never change. Regardless of what happens to me, that will never change. I would encourage you, um, if you picked up the book Hearts of Fire, from Voice of the Martyrs, the story of Ada. Jono's read it. I just finished reading it. Um, it's a, it's a, it is a very good book. But you've got a story of eight women living in persecuted countries who, for the love of Jesus, endured horrific things to glorify the Lord. And, and you see this theme come out over and over and over again. You see the faithfulness of God. You see the goodness of God, even in the midst of horrendous hardship and the fact that they are the daughters of God, irrespective of what happens to them. I would encourage you to read it. Just read one, one testimony a day. It'll take, well, so I read it in eight days. I just read one testimony a day. And each testimony takes about a five-minute read. I would encourage you to do this because it helps put things into perspective for yourself. Because that is our God who we serve. The same one in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, the authority granted to us in Christ because we've been taken out of the kingdom of this world and placed in the kingdom of his son. Authority granted to us. Now, these things give so much substance to the likes of Romans chapter 14, verses 7 and 8. It says this, For none of us live for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord because our focus is Him, because we live for Him who loved us. And gave himself for us. Finishing up on this last thing, the perspective, having the right view. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. What I like about this point is that I, as a child of God, who has been constrained by the love of Jesus, seeks to no longer live for myself, but for him who loved me and gave himself for me, becomes so much easier because now I see things differently than before. I no longer see or am focused on the worldly, physical perspective, instead from a divine, eternal 
perspective. We have been given an insight into the workings of this world through the Word of God by the Spirit of God. To see hands, God's hand move in various ways and in various lives. Practically speaking, I am supposed to see people from the point of view that interprets and assesses people, circumstances, situations that I face through the eyes of God and through the lens of His Word. Speaking with Pastor John last week, he made a really good comment to me, and he was talking about, we have this thing regarding the coronavirus and things that are going on, but he he talked about the protection that we have in, in, in Jesus Christ, that we are protected by the blood of Christ, that our God is so much bigger than a virus. Our God is so much bigger than the weather. Our God is so much bigger than the circumstances that are going around us, and so often we allow what we see to dictate what we do or how we respond or how we act, we are to see, to be able to see as Joseph did with his brothers, that what they meant for evil, God meant for good, so that many lives, including their own, might be saved in Genesis 37.50. To be able to look at the diverse trials that we face and count it all joy because such things develop perseverance and maturity in James chapter 1, verse 2. To observe that the trials and temptations, when endured, will enable me to bear the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. In James chapter 1, verse 12. To recognize who is on our side, regardless of the circumstances. Elisha prayed when his servant was worried about the horses and chariots surrounding them. So when his servant's eyes were opened, what did he see? In 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see that the Lord... Sorry, then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See, this is what's taking place. They're surrounded by a foreign nation. The servant is scared. What's going on? He says, it's okay, because this is who I've got on my side. This is who has my back. Oh, to to see as God would see. To witness the hand of God move. To view the spiritual battle we are in, yes, in Ephesians chapter 6, we are in a spiritual battle, for we wrestle against, not the physical, not flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces, yes, to recognize there's that, but more importantly, to see the captain of our salvation who's given us an armor to enable us to withstand the battle, wherefore having done all, to stand, and that in his power, be able to conquer all. You see the second part of this verse. When it says this, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. This is what I find really interesting, that if we see our situations from, godly, from a godly perspective, it's really important to make sure we see Jesus for who he is. We see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God in all power and all authority and all majesties. You see, the Pharisees saw him and questioned him. The skeptics saw him and doubted him because they chose to see what they wanted to see. And you see this in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus asked the questions, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the popular opinions were, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say that you're Elijah, some say that you're one of the prophets. 
And so they okay, all right, then that's fine. This, this is the popular opinion. So if you ask people today, who do you say that Jesus Christ is? You'll hear, he was a great teacher. He was an enlightened man. He was a good man. He was a bit of a nutcase, a bit of a lunatic. You'll hear popular opinion on who they say Jesus Christ is. But you notice what Jesus asks after he hears the popular opinion? He goes, but who do you say that I am? And Peter's triumphant response, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, that's, that's who we see. At least that's who we're supposed to see. That's who he's revealed. That's how he's revealed himself to us. That he is the Christ, the Son of of the living God. And, and it doesn't matter. We see Christ, the, the God who is above all else. We see Christ, the Word made flesh. We see Christ, who, who spoke everything into existence. We see Christ, who laid his hand upon people to heal them. We see Christ, the great physician. Christ, the great counselor. Christ, who is wonderful. We see Christ. That's who we're to see. That's who is revealed to us. And it is this perspective, the right perspective of seeing him. Because that's the reason why he says, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Why? Because not only have we been, have experienced the love of Christ and now compelled to move, not only do we seek to live, have a change of purpose and live for him, but now we do that easily, easily or easier because we see who he is as our God and as our Savior, oh, that we might see Jesus for who he is and respond to his leading as he moves in our lives. As he, as he moves in our lives. And that, that like a moth drawn to a flame, we might be drawn to a life of obedience because we are constrained by the love that he has revealed to us. You see, this is what it means to live a life of divine purpose. To live a life of divine purpose means that we have the right motivation, the, the love of Christ that draws us in, that, that we have the right purpose, that we live for a purpose greater than ourselves instead of our own, and that we have the right perspective and regarding seeing Christ and all his greatness and his, all his majesty. You see, that's what it means to live in divine purpose, where his purposes take priority over mine, where his desires take priority over me and where his goals take priority over my goals. That's what it means to live in divine purpose. So my challenge to you, my encouragement to you, is that we'll have a clear direction of where we are headed, of why we are headed that way, and the hunger to keep going toward that destination because you know how sweet, how precious, and how valuable it is to hear from your God and your Savior well done, good and faithful servant. Um, it is now 55. Oh, we won't close in a song. What I will do is I'll ask you to be upstanding. And I'll close in a word of prayer. And I know the prayer team will come up straight after. But we would love to pray for you this morning. And pray for you because where you are at with God, I, I don't know. But what I do know is that your God desires you to lay aside your goals and your desires for his. And I pray that you've been challenged in some way to do that. So after I pray, the prayer team will come forward, and uh, we would love to pray for you this morning. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and for your grace. We thank you so much for the love of Christ.
that compels us. And I pray that we as your people would no longer live for ourselves, but for you who died for us and rose again. Father, help us to have the the right view, the right perspective, have the right motivation. Father, that we will be responding to the love you have bestowed upon us in your Son. Um, Help us to live lives, Father, that will have an impact to eternity and not be concerned or consumed with just the here and now. So I ask for you to dismiss us this morning. I pray, Father, you will watch over us as we travel home in such horrible weather. Uh, But once again, we thank you for the blessing of the rain that is watering this planet now. We ask, Lord, that you will rain upon our souls, that you will bring forth an abundant harvest of righteousness in each of our hearts so that we might truly be a people that will shine as a light for you. So we ask you to dismiss us now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said... Amen. Thank you very much for that, brothers and sisters. So as the prayer team would like to come forward, we would love to pray for you this morning. And if you're driving home, please drive home safely. Lots of umbrellas to choose from. It's on the way up. Just make sure you grab yours. <laughs>